Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 18, and this is our first rewind episode of the year where I rewind the tapes and replay some of the great insights and practical tips from the amazing experts that have been on the show. They're going to share with you the latest evidence-based research so you can inform your practice and help your clients or yourself achieve those goals. If you're a new listener to the show, thanks for joining in. If you are a regular listener, welcome back. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show iTunes SoundCloud or your favorite app so you don't miss any of the great episodes coming down the pipeline. All right, let's get to it. Part one of Rewind is all about fat loss. Dr. Sean Arendt in season two, episode 12, is going to talk pros and cons of the different types of body composition assessment tools between DEXA, BODPOD, Skinfold Calipers, and BIA. Dr. Eric Helms in season two, episode seven, will talk about dieting with as many carbs as possible and the interference effect of HIIT training and bodybuilding. And finally, Isabella Hala in Season 2, Episode number 6, will talk about weight loss in female clients and the influence of today's culture on body image. But before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. Okay, Season 2, Episode 18, we rewind the tapes. Enjoy. Let's dive right in here then and talk, you know, body composition assessment in athletes. You know, why is body composition testing important for athletes and really what's the crossover uh, for performance? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think some people get a little bit too carried away with it and some are a little bit too cavalier. To be honest, from our standpoint, um, especially when we work with female athletes, and that's been a big chunk of the emphasis of of my lab for um, probably the last five, six years has been on the female athlete side of things because there's so little data in them for sure. Uh, trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> do, do the recommendations we're basing on, um, on, on male derived studies. Do they really apply to the female athlete? And we're finding interesting enough. No, not all the time. For sure. Um, but it's funny because I think for me with body composition, the, the two ways that <clears throat> we tend to rely on it is Obviously, if you have an athlete who's carrying a really high percentage of body fat, my bigger concern more than anything else is an increased risk of injury, simply because you've got extra weight coming down on those joints. Um, Obviously, you're potentially mitigating some of the the positive speed benefits um, if they're carrying the extra weight and things like that. So it's not that we get too carried away with how low does your body fat percentage need to be. 
But it is one of those things that if we look at areas of adjustment we can make in the offseason, for example, um, that might be one area we key in on. Probably the way that we rely on body body composition the most, though, is making sure they're not losing muscle in season and then seeing what we're accomplishing off season uh, in terms of especially if there's an athlete that we're trying to build up, make more athletic and things like that. So we really use body composition testing to track the athlete as much as anything else, rather than having, you know, these absolute cutoff criteria and whatnot. We do base it uh, relatively in terms of the changes that we've seen them make. Um you know, and it gives us an idea of how well the programming is working. Uh, it gives us some some insights into maybe where dietary adjustments need to be made. You know, if an athlete tells us that they are uh, eating enough, which they're prone to do, and you know, we've kind of figured out over the years, athletes lie. Yeah, um, that's, that's so, true. yeah, exactly. So, so the more objective data we have to kind of back up some of what we think is going on uh, and help us make the adjustments where they need to be, that's where we tend to rely on it the most. Terrific. And when we talk about, you know, methods of assessing body composition in athletes, you know, apart from autopsy, can you maybe give us, you know, the benefits and limitations of maybe the top few strategies in terms of things like DEXA or BOD pod caliper testing? Yeah. So let's start with DEXA just because everybody considers it the gold standard, though. I think that's somewhat arguable from the standpoint of there's a lot of inherent error with DEXA, especially depending on dietary intake leading up to DEXA, hydration status and things like that. So it's not it's not infallible. Uh, um, the other problem with DEXA is it is x-rays. And so for example, in New Jersey, just to give you, um, an insight into, you know, kind of ideal versus real in terms of how you might choose some of these things in New Jersey, because of state laws and the way that radiologists manage to work themselves in, you actually need a radiologist to read or be present for the DEXA, which means that cost starts to become really prohibitive as well as who can run it. And that's obviously not true in every state or in every country in terms of the way that's done. And if you're going to do frequent enough assessments, for example, if we want to look at changes every month, for example, you know, you know, 12 exposures to DEXA, there may be human subjects review boards that have problems with that. And yeah, exactly. there may be better ways of doing it. But DEXA is nice from the standpoint of working with certain athletes and obviously looking at bone density. Um, we're actually in the middle of starting up a, a study with triathletes, male triathletes. And, you know, one of the the things that's been found previously in a few individuals is very low bone density. So that is something in that case, then, that we would use DEXA for from a research purpose standpoint. We tend to rely fairly heavily on BOD pod. So we use air displacement plethysmography more than anything else. Um, the It's quick, which is really nice, obviously, for the athletes. And it doesn't require a lot of skill on their end. Uh, just sit there and still, don't move. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like just breathe normally, sit still, we're good. Um, so anyway, so so we've relied heavily on that. And, uh, you know, we can get through whole teams fairly quickly. But at the same time, you know, we've had good reproducibility of results with that. So so we, we felt good about that. One thing that we recently added is bioelectrical impedance uh, using whole body BIA rather than just handheld or scale based. Yeah. Um, and some of that more than anything is to start to get at segmental body water analysis and looking at some of the hydration factors rather than using it as an absolute measure of body fat. Um, and it's interesting because we do see some variability between that and the bod pod, uh, you know, depending on the, the leanness of the individual. But it's sort of another tool in the arsenal. And then I think finally, one of the things that you'll typically see used, um, and I don't really have a problem with this if you're skilled at doing it, is, is skin fold calipers. You know, and in many cases, uh, you know, looking at skin folds and just simply their thickness, even if you didn't compute 
body composition from it, but you're tracking skin fold thicknesses over, over time, you know, that can be useful information. Obviously though, I think that one of the ways to make that better is you need to be very particular in what you're doing. And I think that I've seen a number of people rush through calipers thinking they're a little better at it than they are. But I think if you're consistent with what you do and you can track it, it does give you a relative measure of change. And I have no real problem with that. Obviously, my preference, and maybe I am a little biased because of what we've seen with our research, but I'm a little more biased towards Bod Pod or one of the, the other sort of gold standards. But I think if you don't have those kinds of resources, I, you know, in that case, I, I do think that skin folds can be very useful, especially if you have somebody who's fairly skilled and, and experienced at doing them, because at least it's a way of tracking your athletes that gives you an objective measure uh, that you can rely on as long as you kind of have the same people doing the testing. Obviously, a, a strategy that can be employed is reducing carbohydrates, sometimes significantly. But what are some of the consequences of, of insufficient carb intake if, if athletes or bodybuilders are still training, uh, you know, in, intensely and trying to grow? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, carbohydrate is um, is important to some degree for bodybuilders. I, I would say it's not as important as you as for an athlete with a much higher energy expenditure. You know, if you are a soccer player or if you're a marathon runner, uh, the kind of carbohydrate intake and also the, the, the subsequent energy intake from taking in a high level of carbohydrate is going to be a lot higher uh, and should be a lot higher if you really want to maximize performance based on what we know. Now, for a bodybuilder, sure, they are anaerobic athletes. You know, you're probably training anywhere in the, you know, 4 to 20 rep range for, for most of the time. And some of that will certainly deplete glycogen, uh, glycogen being the, the, you know, the stored form of, of, of carbohydrate in humans. Um, and, you know, depending on how much volume you're doing, you know, uh, a weight training session can deplete, say, you know, maybe 10 to 30% of the local muscle glycogen. Um, and that, that is enough to induce fatigue. Uh, now, you might think, oh, that, that's a big deal. But the thing is, is you're also not typically training the same muscle group again, you know, within the same day. You know, if, if you have a normal day of eating, you wake up, uh, you have breakfast the next day, and then you go train again, that, that local muscle glycogen is probably completely, if not all the way, replenished if you're on a normal diet. Uh, now, when you're dieting, that, that's a different scenario, you know, because you have a obligatory reduction in calories, that means you're going to have to find somewhere for it to cut from. And carbohydrates is, is often one of, but not the only culprit. Typically, it's, you know, both fat and carbohydrates that have to come down at some point in a diet. Yep. Um, and so, so then, then you're dealing with, okay, I'm, I'm, I am depleting glycogen in training, and I am uh, restricting carbohydrate to some degree. So maybe I am running into some issues with glycogen. Um, even though I'm only training, let's say, each muscle group two to three times per week, I'm kind of in this chronically depleted state. And especially when it comes to the lower body, I'm also doing cardio, typically, at some point. Uh, so that, that's why it's important to modulate the intensity of cardio, to, to kind of think about how it fits in with the rest of your training. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of doing um, a lot of like high-intensity cardio for bodybuilders uh, because of the potential interference effect on training, especially during dieting. So uh, I think there's a time and place for some of it, but it needs to be carefully planned. Um, and for this reason, you want to try to, for the most part, diet on as many carbohydrates as you can with a big emphasis on you. Because some <laughs> people... personalized approach becomes key, right? Exactly. You know, I've, I've had clients who that means, you know, they're, they're getting down to under 100 grams. I've had clients who are on their low days above 300 grams. And that's not just due to 
uh, to body mass or activity levels. There are definitely individual differences. Um, you know, we've got a, a fair amount of research now that shows that uh, insulin resistance or sensitivity uh, can predict whether or not you would be more successful on a lower or higher carb diet um, and co-committantly a uh, lower or higher fat intake, vice versa kind of thing. Now, not to say that I think many bodybuilders are insulin resistant. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. You know, they're, they're typically healthy, lean, health conscious people who are quite active. Um, but there's a lot of things that goes into that beyond just those factors. You know, your, your age, uh, your genetic history, uh, your ethnicity even, these are all things that can affect the way you metabolize carbohydrates. So um, we can't really predict very well uh, whether or not you would respond better to one or the other, but there's always trial and error. And, uh, you know, typically that means you're going to be somewhere in the range of, you know, a gram per pound up to maybe two or three grams per pound, depending on the individual uh, in, in the, in say the off season and then maybe shift that down a little bit, uh, another half a half a gram per pound or so, or, or, or a full gram per pound when you're dieting, um, with some, some reduction in fat as well, but you can only go so low for each one of the macronutrients. You, you probably don't want to be cutting protein. Um, and you don't want to cut carbs so low that you end up sacrificing your training quality and your muscle fullness. Um, and you also don't want to cut your fat too low because then you start to have issues with, fat-soluble vitamins. You can have issues with uh, hormone production. You can have issues uh, with with just mouthfeel and satiety and not feeling uh, and having adherence problems with, with low-fat diets. But um, as long as it's a temporary period, you can get away with a drastic cut in any one of those areas. So it's important to kind of periodize your diet. I use intermittent diet breaks as, as a way to get around this, uh, high days and low days, so that you know we might go five five low days in a row, then and two high days to replenish glycogen and, and just replenish sanity uh, before diving in again. Sure. And, and these seem to be pretty important for, for getting through a diet that has to last as long as it does. Anything else on the nutrition front in terms of differences with, um, you know, female versus male clients or things that, uh, you know, themes that you see regularly in clients coming in, whether it's performance-driven athletes or, 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 fat loss body composition, um, clients? Um, I think actually goals wise, a lot of the time, uh, men and women have similar goals. Like people generally want to, or at least people that I work with want to be stronger, have more muscle and be leaner. Um, the only thing I see very frequently is girls under eating, especially when they start coming to me, it's just like severely under eating. And then they're always shocked at how much they end up eating once, like, after a few months of working with me, that their caloric intake has just skyrocketed and their body composition has changed so much. And they do end up losing weight when they eat more, which is just, I think, a hard thing for women to accept because they've been told, or I don't really know how this happens, but, like, you think you're supposed to eat so little. Like, a lot of girls I know, they're like, oh, I should only eat 1,500 calories a day or this number of carbs and it's just crazy. And a lot of the times that doesn't even actually end up happening. And like a lot of girls think they're eating certain amounts and are actually eating completely different, which is why I encourage tracking just for even like a short period of time, just so you can really see what you're putting into your body. All right. In part two of Rewind, we're going to talk supplements. Dr. Brianna Stubbs in Season 2, Episode number 8, will talk about the benefits of exogenous ketone supplements for endurance performance and potential applications for team sports. Dr. Susan Kleiner, going back to Season 1, Episode number 49, 
We'll talk about the benefits of carbs, in particular carb supplements, to fuel your workout performance, as well as the common trend of carb-phobic females. And finally, Dr. Jose Antonio, also from Season 1, Episode number 34, will talk benefits and pitfalls of beetroot juice and some quick hits on applications for HMB supplementation. From there, we'll transition into Part 3 of Rewind with a discussion on hydration from various perspectives. Elite performance with Dr. Stavros Kavouras and how hydration impacts endurance and strength performance differently. While Professor Tim Noakes will revisit the history of hydration recommendations, the dangers of hyponatremia, and of course the benefits of a drink-to-thirst approach to hydration. Enjoy. You know, the terrific, uh, what was it, five-part study that you guys did using ketone, ester supplementation, and endurance performance. Now, I know this is a really big thing to unpack, but can you give folks some highlights, uh, you know, from that study as it relates to, to endurance performance? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, probably, I mean, the best place to start is the beginning. So, I mean, what, what we did to start with was look at if the body was using ketones during exercise. So, um, we gave a ketone drink uh watched people's blood ketone levels at rest and then made them exercise at two intensities. And so what we saw was when you start to exercise, blood ketone levels are relatively lower than when you sit and have the same ketone drink at rest. And also, as you increase the intensity of exercise, the levels go down a little more. So it kind of strongly suggestive that uh, ketones are being used as a fuel for exercise. We estimated that um, in this state, ketones are accounting for between 16 to 18% of the body's energy requirements. And so I guess one really important point to flag up early on is that all of the athletes that we studied were not athletes following a ketogenic diet. So they were not um, in endogenous ketosis. And that's what's really cool about exogenous ketones. You can have ketones and carbohydrates available to the body at the same time. So the body has all of the fuel sources that it's able to use during exercise, ketones, carbs, and fats. So um, that's why that's why we believe we're seeing performance uh, improvement, which we can kind of talk about a little more later on. So, I mean, um, then we, we were kind of looking to characterize the state of exogenous ketosis and how it affects the body during exercise. And so, I mean, some of the highlights there is that we saw that taking exogenous ketones, even even with exercise, lowers blood glucose. Uh, another thing it lowers is lactic acid levels during during matched amounts of exercise. And it's quite a significant drop in lactic acid. It's anywhere between two to four millimolar less lactic acid. Um, so, I mean, that was something that I remember experiencing when I took the drink. I mean, I um, was very, like, very big lactic acid producer, especially compared to some of my other fellow athletes on the team. And um, so you can really feel when your levels are, are lower. It's sort of, um, it's very... Uh, it's something that really that makes it very real. You can definitely tell that it's affecting you because uh, because your lactic acid is lower. Uh, then we sort of we were moved on. We were looking at different muscle biopsy samples, trying to understand what whether the ketone was getting into the muscle and what it was doing to pathways of glycolysis, what it was doing to fatty acid oxidation, and that biopsy work also revealed that ketones were sparing glycogen use during exercise. So that meant that whilst ketones were present you were not needing to burn as much glycogen to do the same amount of work. And another interesting finding that we uh, never really yet explained is that it looks like when you take a ketone drink, uh, you burn more of the fat that's stored inside the muscle. So athletes tend to have um, lots of lipid droplets inside their muscle, and they're able to use that for energy. And we saw that when we add keto added ketones in, 
the size of the muscle fat droplets drop were decreased a lot more than uh, if you were exercising with just carbohydrates in the pre-exercise drink. So that was interesting. We still haven't really worked out the mechanism for that at all. Um, so all of this like mechanistic work was building up to a performance study. And what we did then was people cycled for an hour at a fixed intensity. It was 75% of uh, work max. And then after they'd done, which is quite intense, it's an intense um, it's not just a little walk in the park, right? No, for sure. They finished this. And I mean, I think at the end of the pre fatigue, their lactic acid, I'm just trying to see if I can see it here. Yeah, their lactic acid is like six millimoles. So it's, you know, it's a pretty intense kind of effort. Then they do the 30 minute time trial. Uh, at the end of that, people's lactic lactates were between 10 and 14. So it's pretty maximal for most, for most people. And we saw ultimately there an improvement in performance. It was 400 meters over 30 minutes. So just over 2%, 2.3%. And um, I mean, to put that in context, that would be 400 meters would be easily the difference between first and eighth place in the Olympic road race. So it's in uh, elite sport, that kind of margin is like pretty impactful. So yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the big one, the big cell metabolism paper. And that was, you know, many, many years of work. And there's still some stuff that we were working on in Oxford that's yet to be published that will kind of, kind of uh, add to and complement that picture. But that's what's out there at the moment. And we've had a lot of interest in that work. Certainly enjoyed answering people's questions about it. And, and with that work, is it, um, you know, in terms of, you know, specific to endurance athletes, is it kind of the longer duration bouts of exercise? Like we're talking marathons or even things like ultra marathons or Ironman events where this could be most applicable? Well, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that, like, we tested it in this very um, specific uh, set of conditions so I mean the only thing I can say with 110% certainty is that with 90 minutes of cycling <clears throat> you've got an improved performance at the end of you know fairly endurance like uh, cycling but we understand the metabolism from this work and so we can make very very informed um, suggestions about where there's going to be the most benefit so my my um, current position is that the longer the event, the more benefit you're going to see because gotcha. of this glycogen sparing, because of the glycogen sparing effect. And so, you know, ketones are burnt inside the mitochondria. They're an aerobic fuel source. So I do not expect there to be the same performance benefit in terms of uh, absolute output in uh, anaerobic sports. Uh, mixed intensity sports are very, very interesting to me because there's, you know, intermittent uh bursts of activity where ketones aren't likely to necessarily help but then you know in, in between each of the sprints you've got this more aerobic uh, component to the exercise where you need to recover and also in mixed intensity sports more often than not they're team sports where uh, being cognitively sharp and making decisions is important and that's certainly something that we've seen in our early data is it affected by ketones so before we moved into humans we did some studies on animals that uh, looked at mice solving a maze and we saw that they were um, able to solve a maze 38% faster having had ketones compared with uh, just normal western diet so that was a good indicator but then uh, in some of the studies we were running at Oxford we were looking at um, decision making and cognitive tasks and we saw some areas where ketones were certainly offering an improvement and that this is being validated um, by some other collaborators that we've, we've been speaking to so I think um, for mixed intensity game sports, maybe you're not going to be able to sprint any faster, but I think your endurance over the whole game will be better and potentially you'll be in a better place to make decisions. 
many women are phobic about starches. So starchy foods like potatoes, breads, uh, pastas, even some women beans, um, sources. And I'm not saying cake and cookies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking, you know, um, that that's okay to eliminate from your diet if you want to. But, you know, and added sugars. But what you do need as an athlete is the the fuel for your training and if you do any kind of high intensity training and certainly have an athletic challenge as part of your training then you must fuel your body with carbohydrate if you don't then when you do that high what you think is high intensity training feels like high intensity training actually what we call your rate of perceived exertion how hard you think you're working will feel out of a scale of 10, like a 9 or a 10. But if we actually measure your work output, it's much lower. What would normally feel like a 5 or a 6. So all those women who come to my office and say, I am training so hard, I am exhausted, I can't even get out of bed after 5 o'clock, I'm, I'm laying in bed already, and I'm not getting the results and I'm getting softer, they're always on low-carb diets, and when we measure their work output, it's low. And so they're not getting the training effect that they think they're working toward. And their body certainly isn't responding with the weight loss that they think they should get. They're not burning the calories that they think they are. So there's no advantage to underfueling your training. I do like to have women put their carb to work for them. So whether if you can eat food, within two hours or three hours of exercise and you can get in a good slug of carb with a little protein, uh, try and limit any fiber that slows stomach emptying, limit fat that slows stomach emptying. Um, carb and, a, and a, so starchy food is usually the best choice with a, a little bit of protein. If you want it, you don't have to have it because that also slows stomach emptying a little. That's the choice. If you can't eat, and I'm one of those women, I've had my daughters are, many of my clients are, it's the reason they're underfueled going into training because they're going to otherwise be puking off the side of the boat. Or <laughs> Never a good throw. thing in competition. Um, that is, and, and you know, full disclosure, the company that I work with, it's a, um, I've used the product for well over a decade is Vitargo and um, it is available in the UK and it is a pure starch. There's no sugar, but it's the fastest emptying carbohydrate that we know of. Um, and it is um, more than twice as fast as any of the other carbohydrate fuels in sports nutrition products, including maltodextrin. So it empties very quickly within starts to empty within 10 minutes from the stomach you can fuel up with i usually like 30 to 45 minutes prior to training it is already on its way to your bloodstream you're feeling the effects you're putting your starch to work for you you can titrate to your own needs because it's a powder so you can say well is today's workout a a 50-gram workout uh, that needs a, an extra 200 calories worth of carb, or is it a 70-gram workout and I need 280 
calories worth of carbs you're going or or if you're doing endurance training hours and hours you can continue to drink it during your training and you gulp it down you don't do little sips and it will fuel your training and you will feel remarkably different it's i i have always been evidence-based i have rarely put my name to a product but this one is a game changer can you talk to us about beetroot juice and how that's impacting performance yeah, there's you know there's some cool data on beetroot juice showing that um, you know like for instance uh, running economy or cycling economy improves meaning you don't use as much as much oxygen um, at a certain workload which is cool I mean particularly for endurance events now I don't know about you and I love the data on beetroot juice but I have tried I don't know how many products and they all taste awful I cannot get it passed my tongue. It's, it's, I remember I had a friend of mine, he's like, hey, you should try these shots, these beet shots. I don't know what they were called. I was like, I'll try anything now. And he's like, oh, yeah, just down it, just down it really fast. And, and it looks like blood. It, I mean, you see this bright red, looks like blood. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. So I went home. I'm like, hey, maybe I'll, I'll just do the shot like I'm doing a tequila shot or something. And I swear to God, when that thing first hit my tongue, I, I just wanted to gag. I was like, Oh my God, this is awful. And I just spit it out. I can't drink it. And that's the problem. I'm like, why does this stuff have to taste so bad? I mean, can they make something that's semi bad, not grotesquely bad? Because normally it's like, what, 500 mils, a full pint that you really need to get in to get that benefit, right? Yeah. And I don't know. Some people, I guess, they just close their nose and they drink it and they're fine. But it's just, yeah, that stuff's nasty. It's sort of, you know what it reminds me of? Of the old protein powders back in the 1970s where bodybuilders said, well, it's got to taste like crap for it to work. And I'm like, yeah, well, this does taste like crap. <laughs> <laughs> Ticks that box. <laughs> and what about any research? I've seen uh, some stuff saying that um, perhaps the elite um, cyclists won't get the benefit as just your, your, you know, your average or recreational athlete from taking the beetroot juice. Yeah, well, I think the, I think the challenge for most elite athletes is they have such a narrow window that they can, they can improve that. Supplements in general um, – may not help them as much unless they don't take any supplements at all. So I think when you're at that level, I mean, you're looking for such minor increments and improvement um, that you'll do anything. I mean, particularly if you make money, you know, as an athlete. If you don't make money as an athlete, then it really doesn't matter. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's being at that level of fitness that is really the challenging part. Awesome. Great insights. Well, how about if we shift gears here to beta-hydroxybetylmethylbutyrate, or HMB? Can you tell folks exactly what HMB is and how it can help uh, those who want to upgrade their performance? Yeah, HMB, uh, as we describe it, is, is a downstream metabolite to the amino acid leucine. So um, leucine, as you know, is, is an essential amino acid. And HMB, uh, I mean, there's a bit of controversy with HMB. And I, I, let me sort of, I, I'll try to sort of massage it so that it's somewhat palatable to your, to your audience. I think when you look at all the data, HMB works under the following circumstances. One, you're either untrained or you're training like crazy, meaning you're beating the hell out of your body. Um, roughly a dose of three, four grams a day uh, over several, several weeks will work. There's even data showing that HMB combined with resistance training in older men can help promote the loss of body fat. So I think the controversy for HMB arises from a couple papers showing that it promotes these gargantuan gains in, in lean body mass of like 8 to 10 kilos. 
Wow. Which is a little nutty. I'm like, wow, eight to ten kilos, that's a lot of freaking kilos. Um, is it possible? Yeah. Is it probable? No. Um, are there people out there who can gain that kind of lean body mass? Yeah, probably. They're kind of rare. It's sort of like finding the person who could run 100 meters in 10 seconds or less. I mean, you probably would never meet one unless you coach track and field. Um, so... I think it's one of those supplements that when used properly, it actually will help you quite a bit. And in fact, there's even data uh, of HMB use in teenagers. In fact, I think it was teenage volleyball players showing that it helped, it helped uh, performance and recovery. And for the athletes listening in there, in terms of the mechanisms, you know, when they get into this two to three to four or five percent dehydration, and we're seeing performance decrements, what's going on behind the scenes in terms of mechanisms that's um, contributing to that lack of performance? Uh, uh, there are two things that happen with dehydration. So probably the primary factor that has detrimental effect on exercise performance is associated with decrease in water in the blood, what we call decrease in plasma water or plasma volume, or technically we use the term hypovolemia. So when plasma volume, when water content from the blood specifically decreases, blood becomes more concentrated, more viscous. And, and also the, the, the big issue is when blood volume decreases, then your cardiovascular system is not working very effectively. So what athletes really see in the day-to-day -day training or performance in games, etc., especially when we talk about endurance events, uh, we see higher heart rate, we see... Uh, onset of fatigue uh, setting uh, much faster, much easier. And little by little, as the dehydration progresses during exercise, then you see more decrements. But but the main or, or the first um, causality, I would say, on the decrement in exercise performance is associated with the decrease in plasma volume. The other thing that happens is we get concentration of blood of blood and that concentration in blood, what we call uh, osmolality or, or hypertonicity, um, what happens, some receptors get activated, the osmoreceptors get activated, and that itself also has an effect on how your cardiovascular system works, how your body perceives thermoregulation, your ability to sweat and regulate temperature. So you also see other than higher heart rate and cardiovascular strain, you also see higher body temperature. You start feeling hotter than usual. And, and actually, if you read in the literature carefully, for every uh, degree of, of uh, for every percent of dehydration, you find a significant increase in your body temperature during exercise. So, so it's, you can really predict it very accurately to see based on how much you lose, how much your body temperature is going to go up. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Amazing how complex all the systems are there, the checks and balances. And, you know, for endurance athletes versus, let's say, uh, team or strength sport athletes, is there, is there a difference there to a group that might be more predisposed than, than another? Um, usually endurance athletes are more sensitive because of the nature of the sports. Uh, for strength for, for for endurance athletes, actually, we do have data that they're coming out of, of my lab and, and other labs, actually, from uh, from Europe and from Canada, actually, um, indicating that even a mild percent of dehydration, we have shown repeatedly that even just a little bit over 1% of body weight dehydration, it shows detrimental effect in performance. And this is for endurance type of exercise, even 
in, intense exercise like cycling or running. Um, if you go to strength like weightlifting and power output and, and jumping, etc., then uh, the threshold that you start seeing in permanent exercise performance, it's a, it's a little bit higher. So typically you need at least 3% of, of water deficit before you start seeing decrements in strength and explosiveness, etc. Um, talking about team sports, um, a lot of, of the team sports, they have very strong endurance component, like basketball, for example, or soccer. Um, and and this thing, there have been several studies showing, you know, they do simulation of, of the nature of the sport with specific tests. But what is interesting, there was a study, there were two studies, actually, that they were published um, a few years ago, it must have been probably seven or eight years ago from Penn State University by Larry Kenny's lab, where he used basketball specific techniques, not looking at their ability to run in the court or to get a rebound, but their ability to score, their ability to do drills that they're very close to the nature of the game of basketball. And they saw that from 2% on, you have decrement in your ability to make a bucket, your ability to dribble well, the ability to run around quickly. So, so even in team sports, um, it seems that water deficit, um, at least we know that 2% um, impairs exercise performance and, and not the classic get in the treadmill and run. Even making you know, free throws uh, could have an effect. Maybe we can circle back to just talk about hydration. You were running a lot of marathons in the 1960s and 70s. What were the original recommendations for hydration then? Oh, not to drink. Uh, we were told that if you drank, it was out of weakness. <laughs> and my great friend, Jackie Meckler, who won the Comrades Marathon, which is the epic ultra marathon in South Africa, 56 miles. And he won it five times. And he said that the goal was to see that you didn't drink during these races. You couldn't, he, he would be forced eventually to drink. But if he saw another a guy who was racing against drinking, he'd say he's weakening. And then he'd immediately increase his pace to pass the guy. So wow. that was the attitude. You only drank as a sign of weakness. <laughs> so I then became quite involved in promoting drinking during exercise and, and helped get the law changed in this country. But it, it was I wasn't the main driver behind a global change. And that by 1976, fluids were more frequently available during marathon races, probably every three kilometers. I think that was kind of what happened by 1976. Then in this country, what happened by 1981, fluid was being provided every mile, every 1.6 kilometers in ultra marathon and marathon races. And what happened in our, the first South African ultramarathon in which there was so much fluid available and, and a female athlete became unconscious during the race and she almost died. She wrote to me and eventually we worked out that she'd overdrunk and she'd become waterlogged. And so that started a 30-year study of how much fluid should you be drinking during exercise and what happens if you overdrink. And then we wrote the book, as you mentioned, Waterlogged which showed that the sports drink industry actively, they didn't falsify, but they overemphasized the role of hydration in performance. There never was any evidence for it, but they managed to suggest you should drink ahead of thirst, you should drink as much as tolerable during exercise. 
And the consequence of that was a number of people got really sick and some people died during marathon, ultramarathon, triathlons and in the military. And the book describes exactly why that happens and why it should never have happened. Fortunately, by 2007, the drinking guidelines changed back to drink to thirst and, and not ahead of thirst. And, and that's the key. We now know as long as you're not thirsty during exercise, your performance will be optimized. It's when you drink ahead of thirst or less than thirst that your performance is impaired. And can we circle back and maybe perhaps explain to folks, you know, what happens when someone has this exercise-associated hyponatremia? Well, it took us a long time to work out that drinking, over-drinking isn't the only cause because probably many people over-drink during exercise and particularly during the 80s and 90s. But what happens is they urinate. And so they would soon learn, I don't want to start, I wouldn't want to urinate every five minutes, so therefore I should stop drinking. And I think that's the self-regulation. What happens in people with hyponatremia is that they over-secrete the hormone, antidiuretic hormone, which is an incredibly powerful hormone, which inhibits all urine production. So what's happening is these people are over-drinking and they're becoming overhydrated, but the body's responding as if it's dehydrated. And so it excretes this incredibly powerful hormone, antidiuretic hormone. And so the people retain the water and they don't pass urine. So they think, gosh, I'm becoming dehydrated. I'm not passing any urine. And if they do pass any urine, it's very, very concentrated. So it's very, very dark brown or dark yellow. And as far as they're concerned, they're feeling so sick because they're dehydrated when in fact what's happened is that they've retained the water, their blood sodium levels drop, and then the water, instead of staying mainly in the bloodstream, goes into the brain, into the cells. The brain swells and you lose consciousness. And unfortunately, if too much water gets into the brain, you stop breathing and you die as a consequence. And so there are deaths from respiratory failure in people who have drunk too much during exercise but they have to have that abnormality they have to over secrete antidiuretic hormone and we estimate that probably 20 percent of people who over drink also over secrete antidiuretic hormone and so they're at risk of developing hyponatremia the other 80 percent can over drink but they're fine because they're not over secreting antidiuretic hormone but but we don't know who over secretes adh and who doesn't so we must just give the global advice that people shouldn't overdrink ever because it's it's not necessary and it's dangerous. In this last section of Rewind, part four, we're going to revisit discussions on mindset and emotions in sport. Dr. Fergus Connolly in season two, episode number two, will talk about the power of storytelling and the tremendous value of observation. Dr. Jeremy Koenig of Athletogen in Season 1, Episode number 24, will discuss the warrior versus warrior gene type and how it can impact your training and game day preparation. And finally, wrapping things up with Heather Moyes, two-time Olympic gold medalist, who will discuss sharing how fears, assumptions, and self-limiting beliefs can create performance roadblocks and ultimately how to overcome them. Can you touch on how um, that connection between storytelling, uh, using that as a teaching tool and emotion are, are wrapped in together? So very often players and, and athletes, you know, none of us like to be lectured to. Um, we are, we um, and, and 
you know, this is something that, for example, Phil Jackson and even Bill Walsh would do years ago. Great coaches have done this for years. It's not particularly new. But allowing the players draw their own uh, conclusions from either either stories or movies um, or combinations of images so that um, the players can draw, uh, can, can have... An understanding of what the message is, but they draw their own conclusions from it. And it's very important that when you tell a story, for example, that has a moral, and go back to the Bible, go back to you know stories and parables that Jesus would tell, the moral of the story and the interpretation would, um, as the interpretation of the the moral and the principle is the same for everybody. But people listen to the story; they don't feel challenged. And it goes back to this idea of not directly challenging the player but telling a story so that they can draw their own conclusion from it and the end result is that people draw their own conclusion but the theme and the moral is the same for everybody yeah i find it's amazing stuff when we see just over generations and and millennia and throughout history this uh, storytelling as a means of, of passing on information from one generation to the next and of course you know even today in elite sport this idea of being able to take away what the person what resonates for that person and of course, well, if you, yeah, and if if you watch if you watch groups of people, you know nobody loves any, you know nobody loves anything better than sitting around telling stories, storytelling. We tell them to our children at night, and uh, we tell the the same stories time and time again. You know the 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 story the, the night before Christmas is going to be read and retold to another generation this year, uh, another year. So they, we live that you know our society um, exists, civilization has existed on storytelling. Um, you know, Disney, uh, Paramount, all of these great uh, industries are, are, are born around and based around storytelling. There's a reason that stories work and there's a reason that, that we use them. So in sport, um, smart coaches uh, and smart uh, support staff use them uh, and use them to help educate players um, so that they, again, draw their own moral or, or conclusion from it. Yeah, it's amazing how today the science behind even just how we can remember things as well from storytelling is, is, is mind-boggling. And, you know, you talk right. about listening, you talk about observing, and of course in your career you've had a chance to observe some phenomenal phenomenal coaches. You know, how important is observing um, in the performance realm? It's it's critical. I, somebody told me the, the or gave me the saying many, many years ago that um, uh, a fool uh, won't learn from a wise man, but a wise man can learn from a fool. And it made me ask the question, which am I? <laughs> and uh, and I've always I've always remembered that. So there is always something to learn by by observing, and um, particularly even at games, um, I I've don't I um, you know people have remarked, well you, you know you are you not happy or you're not emotional or whatever at games, but I'm always. Uh, watching, learning, trying to to see something as opposed to getting caught up in the emotion of the the actual game because you're there's always something to learn and you're always looking for trying to stay one step ahead of of what's happening. So it's always um, learning and and trying to see something before it happens, trying to understand why people do what they do and trying to create an environment that encourages uh, people to, to do particular things. One of the things that I think is really important is when you visit other teams and other environments and you see what they do and how things work, that you, you know, you observe, but in the back of your mind, you ask why, 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 you know, you go to three different levels of 
trying to understand why do people do what they're doing and not take things at face value, not simply assume that because the first thing that you saw is the reason that they do it. Um, you know, it's uh, it. You know, it goes back to watching. You know, you know, watching a world class player, perhaps like LeBron James, and seeing him eat a eat a banana before he, you know, goes to thirty minutes before he plays a game, and assuming that well, if every player that I have eats a banana thirty minutes before he plays a game, he's going to be like LeBron James. <laughs> just more. Maybe, the, maybe the guy just maybe the guy's just hungry. I don't know. Maybe the guy's just hungry. But it's again, it's asking why, 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 going to different levels. Um, understanding that if you go to Kenyans and watch marathon runners and that they eat a particular food, well, knowing that maybe that's just the local food, maybe that is not the secret to success. And it's understanding those different things. The other thing that's particularly important about observing great teams is knowing what it is that you can learn from them. And I, I use the example of soccer and rugby. If you want to learn from soccer, um, know that you won't learn a lot or you won't learn a lot about strength training in soccer because it's not as as big a factor in the outcome of performance, um, but you will in rugby. Um, but if you go to if you go to rugby, for example, if you go to a rugby team to learn, um, can you draw on uh, can you draw on them from a better understanding of strength and power, and as opposed to skill? Because in soccer, skill has a far greater impact on the game. Than, uh, than, than strength and conditioning. So um, these are the things that I think it's very important to understand the environment that you're going into and what you can learn from them. The brain obviously is the sort of the new frontier in sport performance. Um, what can we tell from the genetic side of things that could influence in terms of uh, you know, psyche, uh, in terms of sport and elite athletics? Yeah, th this is this is an interesting one. Um, uh, again, uh, starting with a disclaimer that, uh, like you said, right, the the um, um, genetics loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. Um, there's uh, you know one one particular variant of the um, <coughs> of the and I'll post this as well uh, of the, the the comp gene that actually. Um, is referred to in the literature as the warrior versus the worrier gene, um, and this has to do with uh, the rate of metabolism of, you know, various neurotransmitters um, and uh, you know, dopamine, for example. Um, what What's interesting is that you can kind of pick these people people out, um, and I and I do time and time again, like. Um, that kind of well, you know, that, I describe that kind of border collie like behavior. Like in me, when I take all that caffeine, that tends to be like more of your worrier. Yeah. Um, we we like the term strategist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But, but like in that individual, they don't need very much stress to bring urgency um, to a situation. And these are like the folks that like really like to practice, right? But they might buckle under pressure or, you know, this kind of personality might be overrepresented in a pitcher or a goalie, um, not, not universally, but, um, definitely an overrepresentation and, um, you know, how individuals, um, as I said, handle stress when they're in the warrior state, um, you know, they often need a whole heck of a lot of stress, like the stress of competition to get up for performance. So, you know, what do you do with that information? You know, and we just um, anecdotally at this point, we see things um, even like like athletes with these different genotypes already 
kind of figuring it out from themselves because a lot of these are very mature athletes um, and they've learned this through trial and error. But the folks that would tend to be more of a strategist, they listen to like more like classical music on race day, believe it or not, compared to like the Warriors. They're like more kind of really bass, bass kind of, you know, get me pumped, let's go. Well, when we talk about this idea of, of, you know, you have to, you know, it's a reality yeah. check or people need to do mm -hmm. things that are realistic. You know, you mentioned that kind of being a roadblock to really fulfilling or chasing dreams. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of like, I break that down in my book into kind of two different parts. And the first one is, is the kind of the physical, tangible, visible, um, obstacles that we, that we see things like, or that we kind of claim things like finances and not enough time, not enough energy, um, not enough resources, um, geography, like all of these things that you can kind of, you know, point your finger to. But there are so many examples in the world of people who don't have any of those and who've achieved significant, um, significant levels of success. And so what it starts, it should be making people wonder, well, what is it? And those external obstacles are really what we use as excuses the true obstacles and what's really stopping us are the internal obstacles the things that that convert those external those excuses into into our obstacles and and, and roadblocks and so the things on the inside would be like fears uh, assumptions and self-limiting beliefs so the whatever the self-limiting beliefs is you know created from when it's all based on experience all of it all three of them are based on experiences and so experience when you say oh they have so much experience sometimes it's not always good because it all depends on what kind of experience they've had and if their experience was that failure um, equals rejection then they aren't going to be as open-minded to take any risks or to take chances because of the fear of rejection. Um, it's not always the, the fear of failure is kind of like, okay, well, well, why? So most of it comes down to rejection or to not being included and not being accepted and, um, and that sort of thing. So, um, that's where a lot of the fear stems from. Um, and assumptions, oftentimes we just assume too much. We assume that, that there's someone who's more qualified. We assume that our, that our experiences or our um, qualifications are, are not enough. Um, we assume that uh, that person who you know has more qualifications is going to get the job, so you might as well not even go out for it uh, without realizing that maybe they have chosen something else. Um, a lot of, we just assume, we assume a lot, um, a lot more than we even realize we are. Um, and then, yeah, and those self-limiting beliefs, I think we just need to expand um, and, and embrace the challenge of, of trying to push those boundaries and to truly test ourselves to see what we're capable of. Because like I mentioned earlier, we are all in positions to really surprise ourselves when we don't add these kind of self-imposed limitations on, on what we're capable of. And often those limitations are based on I mentioned our experiences, but also just our environments. I mean, you start wondering, for example, uh, being a doctor, um, a lot of doctors are follow, pursue that route because they have family members who are doctors. And so they just, just by 
being in a member of that family, they know that being a doctor is possible. So is it necessarily because they're children of physicians, which means that they're that much smarter? Or is it the fact that they just know that it's possible, so it's a route that they can follow? Um, it's the same as being an Olympian, for example. Like, I didn't even pursue it because, well, I didn't really cross my mind. Like, Olympians were TV people. It never occurred to me that they're just normal, everyday people like I consider myself to be. But yet I have my nieces and nephews who are talking about, you know, going to the Olympics as though it's, you know, you know on par with being a teacher, which I'm glad that I've instilled that, that point of view. You know, every, everything we pursue, every kind of uh, industry, job in any kind of industry is going to take work and, and discipline and learning specific skills for those particular routes. And yes, we are all have, do have genetic potential that suits us better for certain industries than others. But that doesn't explain why there are perfectly genetically gifted human beings who never make it to those you know, the top echelons of, of their, you know, sport, it's, or perfectly brilliant CEO, like people who could be CEOs in the corner. Like they're just, we just sell ourselves, we stop ourselves. We stop ourselves from pursuing things based on what we perceive to be possible before we even test it. Fantastic, fantastic insights here from the experts in this episode evidence that can really help to inform your practice and make a difference to what you do on a day-to-day basis. Thanks again for everyone tuning in. If you want links to the full episodes from the clips you heard here, then be sure to check out the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Of course, if you have any questions about this episode or want to leave a comment, then please, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you could share on social media, whether it's an Instagram post, a tweet, a Facebook post, or a review on iTunes, uh, all of those are really, really appreciated and a tremendous, tremendous help to the show. And of course, a chance to share some great insights from the experts with your friends and colleagues as well. Thanks again, everyone, and see you all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.